Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week, guys. And thank you for for being a listener of the show. I was thinking recently, Mark, about just how amazing it is that people still listen to us this many years on and are still <laughs> still wanting to hear what we've got to say. Before we crack on with this week's episode, I wanted to say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. So are you happy for me to say a big thank you, Mark, or would you like to say the thank yous? No, I'll let you do it. Okay, there's a few names in here that people are going to love that I'm going to probably mispronounce. So thank you very much to Xanthi, Jess Hem, Verena Tuscani, Carly Emmis, Laura West, Sally Carter... Kira McManus, Lorna Bostock, Jodie Fraser, and then I've got to scroll, and also Charlotte Wayne, Sir Julian Skye, Katie Rudd, Emma Anderson, Pamela Smith, Caroline Monroe, Elise, and Lucy Goodwin. Thank you so much to all of you, and to all of our existing Patreon supporters as well, of course. Yeah, that is an awful lot of you. Uh, Thank you so much to everybody who signed up to support us. It makes a huge difference for us and the show. And if you want to join these people, all you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week, I wanted to kind of facilitate a bit of a discussion around domestic abuse, but specifically against men. Um, Because whilst there is this general perception that domestic abuse is something endured only by women, domestic violence against men is more commonplace than is often realised. And as Mankind Initiative, an organisation which supports male victims of domestic abuse, points out on their website, for every three victims of domestic abuse, two will be female, one will be male. And I reckon that really for people listening to this and those of us who have an interest in true crime, it's not going to be as much of a shock. But in general society, there really is still this stigma around men being the victims of domestic abuse. And for many people, like the idea that domestic violence against men even happens will be quite an eye opener because men are still expected to be really tough and macho, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think it's one of those things, isn't it? It's hopefully that I hate to use that term toxic masculinity, but that kind of is toxic masculinity where society believes that men should behave and act in a certain way and I think that is shifting that belief that men should be macho and hard and shouldn't fall victim to things like this so I think we're more understanding of it but you are right there is still a massive proportion of society and it's not wrong to believe that it's just based on on what they see portrayed in the media for example but there is a huge proportion of society that doesn't think this happens to men and I'm not shocked by that figure and a lot of our listeners I don't think will be like you said uh, we kind of understand true crime a bit more and we do have a lot of examples where men have been a victim of domestic abuse at the hands of a woman or a man if it's a gay relationship for example and I've seen that firsthand I've been out with people and seen domestic abuse happening in public uh, and it's it's disturbing to to see it because we talk about it a lot, but to actually see it. Wow. And to see something in public, you then kind of think, well, Christ, how bad is it in, you know, behind closed doors? Because that's really quite, um, yeah, unusual, isn't it? You usually find that things are hidden. 100%. Yeah. You, you wouldn't expect to see it on a social night out but yeah I I saw it it was 15 plus years ago and it stayed with me ever since and it was horrific to witness yeah and so this week I wanted to highlight kind of two cases 
from recent years here in the UK. Obviously, like you said, there's so many more, but we've got two cases to look at in this week's episode. Simon Gilchrist was just 23 years old when he lost his life at the hands of his fiancée, Caroline Moorhood, in 2004. His mum, Josie, later said that the signs that her son was the victim of domestic abuse didn't register so much, in her words, because he was a man, and she's spoken of how much Simon changed during his relationship with Mahood. So she said there was a little spark missing, his phone would go constantly, he didn't see his friends much. At first I thought that's natural in a relationship and he's working full time, but then it was like he couldn't do anything. And this is straight away, you know, a woman being constantly messaged by a male partner, not being allowed to see her friends, would probably raise a lot of alarm bells for people. But as a bloke, I don't think it does as much I, I don't think it would I think I think anyone who witnesses or witnessed that might have just thought she's a bit needy or a bit vulnerable and would have taken that typical stereotypical view of a woman she's constantly in touch with him constantly on at him she needs him she's a woman she is weak she needs the man that is how it would have been interpreted a lot yeah exactly that's one of the this is kind of one of the key elements of Simon's really sad story how many blokes kind of put up and probably get a you know a bit of a ribbing from their mates as well his mum said if my daughter had been getting umpteen phone calls I would have said that's not right and her group of girlfriends would have said the same but a group of men would say you're under the thumb she's seen as a nagger and I thought gosh that's really interesting straight away there's this difference in the same behavior and how it's perceived A representative from the Respect Charity, which runs a helpline for male victims of domestic abuse called the Men's Advice Line, said to the press after Simon's death, there's still a stigma around male domestic abuse, a fear of being ridiculed and laughed at and not believed. Society needs to change to accept male victims. And saying men are under the thumb is unacceptable. Laughing at someone is unacceptable. We need to change society as a whole. And Simon's story is really frustratingly similar to many other stories we've heard before. So Simon and Mahid were one minute friends, then they were sleeping together, the next minute they were in a relationship and it all moved really fast and soon they were living together. Simon's family felt like she seemed like a nice enough girl and that since Simon really loved her, that was what was important. So Simon had known Mahid for a while and when they decided to get together, she was actually pregnant. He agreed to take on her and her unborn child, knowing full well that he wasn't the dad. They soon chose to have another child together, and within two months of the birth of Mahud's first daughter, she was pregnant again. As the relationship progressed, Simon's family started to see less of him, but again, this isn't exactly unusual at the beginning of a relationship, is it? And especially when someone's had a new baby and then another child... But this really escalated and continued even after those first kind of exciting few weeks where you see this in a more normal way. When friends and family did see him, Simon's phone just wouldn't stop ringing. Morhood was unable to let him go anywhere without knowing what he was doing and where he was. And he soon began to see his friends a lot less too. And soon enough, she began to physically abuse Simon too. His mum Josie noticed marks on his face at one point, but she said later... I noticed a couple of marks in his face. In my stomach, it didn't feel right, but he brushed it off. I believe because Simon was male, it just didn't register so much. There was even blood on the path outside their house at one point, but again, it just didn't really register properly. And it was only later with all these small, in inverted commas, incidents kind of stacking up that people had the full picture. But by then, it was just too late. 
Um, another incident that worried Josie was she'd given Simon money for his birthday and he told her that he was going to use it to buy some tools for work. He loved his job. He wanted to do really well. But he used the money instead to buy Moorhood a football top and he didn't get himself anything. So he loved her so much and he would do anything for her, despite the abuse he was suffering at her hands and her controlling, her jealous and her violent, angry behaviour. Simon would either not go to events that he had planned or if he did... Moorhood would join him, making sure that she was there watching his every move. She was allowed to go out on her own, but Simon wasn't to be trusted. Simon wasn't allowed to go out alone. The pair were in a relationship for 18 months. So it's not even like they've been together this really, really long time. It's such a short time. And he's not given her, from what I can tell, any reason not to trust him. It was very, very sudden. And if she ever went out, he was home with the children. But if he went out, she had to come too, and Simon's mum would babysit. It was very, very unfair and one-sided, this relationship. And it's like you say, he's not, as far as we know, he's not done anything to invoke mistrust from her. So this is a really committed relationship. He's taken on her first child uh, as his own, and then they've had another child together very quickly. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly committed. She's got no reason to believe that he's not in this for the long term. So Moorhead did have two cautions in her history, although she had no previous convictions, and she was prone to violence. So she'd assaulted a police officer, she'd cut a previous boyfriend with a knife, and she was an alcoholic with an incredibly troubled past. Her children meant everything to her, and she claimed in court that she had actually given up daytime drinking because of them, and she hadn't self-harmed since her daughter was born. So she had... She had a lot in her past and there was a lot that had happened to her. So you can kind of understand where some of her issues kind of came from. But according to her, she wasn't drinking in the day and that sort of thing. So I think there's nothing that, that kind of points to for Simon to kind of realise that anything would be wrong until he's right in the thick of it. On the 26th of July 2004, Caroline Moorhood was out drinking. She had attacked a total stranger named Hannah whilst at the pub and then she headed home after eight double Bacardi and Cokes. And here comes Mark with a comment about how that's just breakfast for me or something like that. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, to, be on- to be honest, the actual honest truth is I know Bacardi is not actually that strong. It's not as strong as vodka, for example. So I was actually thinking, well, that isn't really that much. And as someone who went on an absolute bender yesterday afternoon, I can't really say a lot, can I? No. But this is kind of giving a background of her and her state of mind at this point. Apparently, it was a completely unprovoked attack on this person. She was out with a friend and she just went off at this total stranger and was just drinking. And she was also moaning about Simon the whole time. It's not, not that there was anything in particular. So her friend didn't say there was something that stood out as a reason when she got home, there was this absolutely furious row. We don't know what happened. We don't know what was said during that row, but something happened. Something snapped and Caroline Moorhood stabbed Simon. At her trial, she told the jury that Simon's death had been an accident because she forgot she had the knife in her hand and she had meant to just push him. But I think we can all agree that is... Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, unless we find out a bit more, as I'm sure we will in a moment, that potentially could have happened she could have just absolutely lost it not realized she had a knife and before you know it it's too late and she stabbed him I don't know I just think you've got a knife in your hand 
Like, you know, I, I just, I just think like you would know this surely. She was clearly spoiling for a fight because she's obviously got into this um, row and this fight at the pub with this random stranger. Mm-hmm. And then she's moaning about Simon the whole time. She's had a few drinks, gets home, and then she's straight on to him. So, yeah, it's almost like a form of anger turned in on herself. And the only way she can try and get rid of it is to sort of let it all out and in his direction. Yeah. So Simon ran out into the street and he managed to call 999 from a phone box close to their home. And Moore had followed, clutching him as he lay there in a pool of his own blood, crying out, don't leave me. Simon was taken to hospital, but sadly died shortly after. So Caroline Moorhood denied murder at her trial at Leeds Crown Court, but the jury convicted her within two hours of retiring to consider their verdict and she was jailed for life. She was sentenced to a minimum of 12 years in prison before being able to be considered for parole. So the jury just kind of went, not even two hours. A life sentence with a minimum term of 12 years. I don't think Mm -hmm. I've ever come across a term that's so low for murder. Um, And that, again, what what would the sentence have been if it was the other way around? That's a really interesting point. I didn't even think of that when I was writing that, but yeah. Has the judge got some kind of bias because she's a woman? Possibly in that sentencing. Maybe the judge or the jury or both felt similar to you in that that is an understandable story. You shouldn't be holding a knife during an argument and you did lunge and got angry and it is still murder, but we understand some of your reasoning maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's not manslaughter, it is murder, but there is a spectrum with murder. So it's obviously right on the, Mm -hmm. just tipped over the edge from manslaughter into murder. That's how I would have to uh, relate it to myself, yeah. Following Simon's death, his mum, Josie, decided to dedicate her time to working with North Yorkshire Police to help highlight the issue of male domestic abuse. She said, All I have left of Simon now is memories, and I don't want anyone else's son, grandson, brother or friend to be taken the way that Simon's life was taken. It's difficult to talk about domestic abuse, whether you're a woman or a man, because the person you're talking about is someone that you still deeply love. Look for the signs, and if you're worried, talk about it. It may cause a bit of a row, but if that's all it causes, and they are kept safe as a result, it's worth it. And I think at that point she was talking about if you spot it in a loved one's relationship, you should go and confront them and try and help them. And I thought that was quite brave of her, because obviously she didn't pick up the signs for her son. Yeah, but however, it, the the issue could be that she may have she may have absolutely uh, might have computed in her head. She realised what's going on, speaks to her son, and because of the manipulative relationship he's in, he's not able to actually admit to himself, let alone anyone else, that he is the victim of domestic abuse and do anything about it. But equally, you don't know. He might have. He might have broken down with his mum and said, yeah, actually, I think I am. And she might have been able to say, well, let's get you some help. Yeah, it's such a tricky one, isn't it? She she goes on to say, have that conversation with them. Don't be a bystander. Have some further chats around whether they are actually all right. And if your gut feeling is something is wrong, you may well be right. But I agree with you. I think that is a very, very almost like dangerous thing to sometimes do, isn't it? Because... What if it pushes something the wrong way? She also said men may not want to report it due to any stigma they feel or simply may not want to believe that they are victims and this is why it's so important that family, friends and colleagues stay vigilant for any signs of abuse. So often we find individuals may fail to recognise or struggle to come to terms with the fact that they are being abused 
And support networks can play a vital role in helping them to understand this and to find help. So yeah, I thought it was quite a very, a very interesting side of that, that as a society, we are knowing more and more and we, we know now that men are, are victims of this. This isn't some shock to us. So actually helping to protect our loved ones and our friends. And I think that's nearly 20 years ago. I think if this had happened now, maybe she would have noticed it and not had those sort of unconscious biases in place and been able to say something. And of course, back in 2004, it was very different. So I completely understand that she, it, it just didn't, she didn't twig. It didn't quite add up in her head that he was a victim of domestic abuse because of course he wouldn't be as a man. And that is kind of, mm. um, yeah, how it was back then. And, and as we said at the top of the episode, it's still very much like that. I think I still think there's a long way to go. Um, with this in terms of people understanding that a third of domestic abuse victims are men. And this is it. So an annual crime survey for England and Wales found that a quarter of all domestic abuse crimes in 2018-19 were committed against a male victim. And they also showed that 3.8% of men compared with 7.5% of women, were victims of domestic abuse in 2018-19. So I thought that was quite interesting. It's not even like domestic abuse is quite a small... There's 3.8% of men in England and Wales. I just thought that was really quite high. Yeah, that's nearly and, a million men. Yeah, and if official statistics and surveys kind of show that it could be a surprise to some, but a high proportion of women actually inflict physical harm as well as emotional and psychological and coercive control over their partner. Again, I think we might have that unconscious bias that from a woman being an abuser, it's less likely to be physical. Women tend to be smaller than their partner and men tend to be stronger. And in a, a heterosexual relationship, you you kind of think of it as like the big strong man and the small lady, but actually that's not the case at all. And it almost doesn't matter about your size. If, you've, if you're wielding some sort of weapon or something, That that is irrelevant at that point. And, and also a lot of men, if they've been brought up well, will have been told dec- over the last kind of few decades as they've been brought up that you absolutely do not hit a woman. And that, of course, yeah. is absolutely right. You do exactly. not do that. So, Like um, um, maybe- Robert was saying in our episode where we talked about his attack and Sophie, his girlfriend's... That was one of the things yeah. that really hit him. Yeah. It was like... Um, that's a poor choice of words. One of the things that really kind of got to him, I should say, is like, you don't hit a woman. Like, they're going after my girlfriend. It's one thing to beat me up, but not... Yeah. Like, that was crazy. That that was even something that crossed his mind. Yeah. Mankind Initiative also released information stating that a quarter of those reporting domestic abuse to police forces in England and Wales in 2018 were men, which was up from 19% in 2012. So that jump from sort of like... 19% up to 25% um, was partially explained by coercive control not being a crime in 2012. But I do also think this is due to a shift in thinking by society in general and being able to stand up for yourself and say, actually, I have been a victim of abuse and not trying to hide it as as um, previously, I think men were kind of made to feel they should. That's it. The figures have never really changed, I would say. the That amount of abuse always happened. It just wasn't recognised. It wasn't reported, whereas now it is reported. Yeah. And 
in its advice to male victims, mankind said, it's important to recognise that you are not to blame, you're not weak and you're not alone. Understand what is happening to you. And if you are a victim of domestic abuse or domestic violence, it is unlikely that the abusive person will ever change their behaviour towards you. Domestic violence or domestic abuse is always about asserting power and control. But with that tough macho image in mind, it is perhaps no surprise that 49% of men told no one that they were victims of domestic abuse in 2017 to 18, but 19% of women didn't say anything. So you've got almost eight, you've got just over 80% of women who were victims who told somebody, but more than half of the men, nearly half the men just didn't tell anyone at all. So even then, you know, we know that this is happening, but they're just not wanting to say anything. So we've still, we've still not come that far if half of men who are the victim of a domestic abuse won't, won't report it. Exactly. So of the men that then rang Mankind's helpline, 70% said they wouldn't have rung that helpline if it was not anonymous. Of victims, 11% of male victims had tried to take their own life, compared with 7.2% of female abuse sufferers which I thought was a really sad statistic there. And of domestic abuse crimes recorded by the police, 26% were committed against men, but only 4.4% of victims of domestic abuse being supported by local domestic services are men. So that kind of really highlights how few men are being supported by local domestic abuse services. And I found it really frustrating for me. I I know full well I'm never going to totally understand this. And so I can... I can understand why victims feel unable to leave an abuser or report them in general in in society in the world that I can understand it but this just really makes me feel so sad that men especially should feel like they're they should be tougher that they can't admit to being a victim and I'm going to go into some other reasons shortly but I was hoping Mark when I get to the end of the statistics you might be able to give like a bit of a male perspective on this and I I know that I can't fully speak for this topic if you know what I mean yeah so mankind reported that 95% of callers to the helpline suffered emotional abuse 68% of them suffered physical 41% psychological 23% financial 13% coercive control and 3% sexual abuse and in its key 50 key facts about male victims of domestic abuse they kind of refer to academic research into why men stay in abusive relationships so the main reasons were concern about their children that the fact that they consider marriages for life that love for their partner fear of never seeing their children um which was lower than concern about the children but still quite high a belief that she would change a lack of money nowhere to go embarrassment not wanting to take their children away from their mother threats that the mother would kill herself or a fear that she would kill him. And it was kind of here in my research that I started to understand things a bit more because courts will naturally side with a mother when it comes to custody of children. They're really sadly used as a weapon by an abuser. And the idea of having nowhere to go really breaks my heart, but makes sense because us women, we tend to have more friendship support groups and family support. Men tend to be the one that leaves the family home if a relationship breaks down and and they separate and it's already hard enough for women so I can understand how this does kind of happen and being less able to even admit that you're a victim of abuse but yeah I just hoped you could kind of give like a bit of a male perspective on how this can happen 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I've fortunately never been in, in that position of being a victim in, in a relationship mm-hmm. like that. Um, I don't have children, so I, I can't come at it from that angle, but I can see objectively that I think certainly with children, um, and the courts favouring mothers providing the majority of care for children, which I think is still the case. It's all, always been the case historically. And I think men, where it's a, a normal kind of family setup, 2.4 children kind of vibe, I could understand that there would be a, a huge concern from a man that he wouldn't be able to see his children or that he would lose all contact with them or, or get very limited contact um, and that they would be used as a weapon. So, yeah, I think there probably is that desperation to keep the relationship mm. going. Otherwise, the consequences are that the family completely breaks down and I don't get to be a dad to my kids. So yeah. I think that probably is a, a huge part of it, I would have thought. But I also think it's to do with the fact, it's still to do with the fact that men just aren't seen as victims of abuse. There aren't any high-profile campaigns that I can see or can think of where uh, high-profile people, for example, have come forward and said they were a victim and and they're kind of raising awareness. Whereas you do see that with um, with female celebrities, for example, people like Mel B, who has talked candidly about being in a, an abusive relationship for a decade, wrote a book on it, works with Women's Aid and does a lot around mm-hmm. that. I can't think of a, a male equivalent. So there's reasons for that. The reason is that, yeah, men will see it as uh, damaging their pride if they come out and admit that they were a victim of abuse at the hands of a woman. Yeah. And you're right, you see these campaigns, for example, at the World Cup. If his team loses, he's going to come home angry. There's like, I can't remember what the, what the sort of tagline was, but there was a, yeah, a big campaign around that and Christmas time. But it, it is always aimed more at women being victims. So yeah, you're right. There's just, there's just not enough. And maybe that's what, what kind of subconsciously made me want to write this episode. To, even though in the true crime world we aren't so blinded to it I guess we're still as a society yeah and Mankind Initiative also said there seems to be an unwillingness by men to suspect that their woman would turn violent against him so only three applications made to police forces under the domestic abuse disclosure scheme so Claire's Law in 2017 were made by men only three percent of those applications so there also seems to be this, well, she's not likely to be, you know, whereas women might be more suspicious of men and more, I don't know what the word is, like more willing to check. I don't, I don't know what I'm, what the word is, but I, yeah, maybe women are more likely to have a look into someone's past than a man because they just don't expect it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then the narrative is that men generally are the abusers in a domestically abusive relationship. Yeah, that's true. So women are more likely to be worried. Yeah. And so related to the issue of domestic violence against men is obviously coercive control. And so West London solicitors IBB did a survey of 2003 adults in late 2018. And so they found that an equal portion of men and women said that they had experienced being in a coercive or controlling relationship but 48% of men who responded said they did nothing about it, whereas it was 33% of the women said that they did nothing about it. So within this um, survey, they looked at behaviours like partners spying on each other, the partner monitoring or controlling their spending, 
um, intentionally destroying possessions or deleting important emails or text messages, um, hiding or take away, take away the person's phone, tablet or computer, depriving or limiting their intake of food. So there was some the fact that it was like an equal portion of men and women had had experience of a lot of these things, 48% of men who had gone through that just didn't even report it. They didn't bother to do anything about it and didn't feel that they needed to do something about it. Whereas of the women, they felt that they needed to do something about those behaviours. So it kind of goes back to that whole thing of like, she's a nag, you're under the thumb. It's it's just women, oh, women having a moan. But it's not, it's abuse. I think it also goes back to the fact that women do have more role models, visible role models yeah. of, you know, these high profile people who have been victims, who are speaking out and talking about different organisations that can provide support and help. So they will see it in themselves and see that mirrored back at them. Whereas men, there just aren't enough men talking about this. So men don't see it. Yeah. So Mankind did note that convictions of women perpetrating domestic abuse has increased sixfold in the 15 years up to 2018-19. So 806 convictions in 2004-5, 4,599 then in 2018-19. And annoyingly, the statistics are um, that I was able to find were reasonably sort of old now, kind of 2018-19. But the main reason being is that we had this massive shift in society with lockdown. And actually, within lockdown, there were a lot more cases of domestic abuse, but actually a lot more men got in touch and needed help. So at this point, I was able to kind of look at sort of how things have changed since 2017. So it's really not a long time, but a lot has happened. So the Men's Advice Line, which is a government-funded helpline for male victims of domestic abuse, has experienced a 170% increase in calls and emails since 2017. Now, obviously, this is there's also the information that people are just able to talk about their experiences more, but it does look as well that during lockdown, more happened as well. So it's it's a bit of an odd time frame to kind of look at but in 2017 to 18 the helpline received 12,559 calls in 19 to 20 23,121 phone calls and then whilst the country was locked down they received 31,711 calls and then in 2021 to 22 they received 32,891 calls so the manager of the helpline said that during the pandemic they saw rapid growth in demand across the men's advice line because male victims were locked down at home with their abusers and isolated from their support networks. So for many this meant an increase in the frequency and severity of the abuse and this resulted in an unprecedented 41% increase in demand for help for the helpline. How crazy is that? Isn't that awful? It, it is, but I, I suppose it's almost, it's the same for women though. So, and we are talking major, mostly about heterosexual relationships because it's fair to say that the majority of relationships will be heterosexual, so a man and a woman. I'm not saying abuse doesn't happen in, you know, in, in a female relationship, a male relationship, for example, but when we talk about heterosexual relationships, women, it would have been the same for women though, wouldn't it? So during lockdown, women would have reported instances of domestic abuse. There would have been a huge increase of their reports yeah. to helplines offered by Women's Aid, for example. However, what I think is interesting is that the lockdown was was sort of almost like psychological torture for a lot of people. So it really 100%. kind of hit people emotionally. 
And we do have to accept that generally there are differences between the sexes. So men probably are less emotional. That's due to programming, conditioning, but also just genetic makeup. And women can be more emotional. So it could be that lockdown disproportionately impacted women more. And some women that wouldn't have been necessarily capable of coercive control before were suddenly kind of capable of it and found that their own torture within their own head from the situation they found themselves in because of the pandemic manifested as some form of domestic abuse, which wouldn't have happened had we not had this weird situation. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle. And to kind of go back to your point, so a lot of so all of the stats that I've had for this episode are based on a heterosexual relationship because there is just not as much information out there about being able to directly compare with either gay, lesbian or bisexual relationships and domestic abuse within those. There are facts and figures, but it's it's almost impossible to directly compare a heterosexual man in a heterosexual relationship and abuse with a gay man in a gay relationship and abuse. It was a real difficulty for me to kind of find those facts to actually make them marry up because they just were not and it does happen it does happen in yeah and like i say same sex relationships yeah exactly 100% does and that is also a difficult thing because then you're kind of looking at well there's lots of these statistics about a man whose children are going to be taken off him and he doesn't want his marriage to break down blah blah But what if you're in a relationship where there are no children involved? Are you then going to start to think, well, my abuse is less important or less worthy of taking it? I don't know. Like, that's another side to this, that there's just no fairness in the reporting and the standards of kind of looking after people. It could be that it's a very, very much a hidden thing because... Because the government, for example, aren't able to get really accurate statistics representing that part of society. So I think yeah. it, it could be it could be almost a ticking time bomb. Who knows? It might be that it happens a lot less in gay relationships, but it might be that actually it happens a lot more and we just don't know. Yeah. So that's worrying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just this this whole thing of the way that men and women are treated differently. So As of September 2022, there were 269 refuge or safe house spaces for men. Now, this is really similar to the number of refuges available to women. So in 2019, Women's Aid stated that there were 220 providers running 368 local services, running 269 refuges and 213 dedicated services. So with women, you are going to have the need for a little bit more because they will have children with them so these dedicated services are also for children and young people so it kind of makes sense there would be a little bit more but the amount of men that were being supported when I was looking at the facts before it was something like four percent of men were actually getting support so there are these things around but less men are actually being able to take advantage of that so Yeah, 4.4% of domestic violence victims that were male were actually being supported, even though there should be the same options available. But again, I think you don't really hear the term men's refuge you hear women's refuge don't you and we've done we've done things uh together for women's refuges 
uh, charitable things we've done, I mean, it would never have occurred to me that there would even be a men's refuge or that we should support a men's refuge. So it well, just shows, actually, again, that unconscious bias. I will, I will disagree with you there because we did deal with, but it wasn't necessarily for a refuge for abuse, but it was homeless shelter that was specifically designed for men. And we did support them within our work, actually. And that was something that both of us, we did talk about a lot at the time. But it was, yeah, it wasn't fully about domestic abuse, though. That's, I guess, the thing, isn't it? But that was an interesting point, because we we kind of realised that men are more vulnerable to being, one, made homeless, and two, mm-hmm. kind of coming out of that yeah, um, and integrating back into normal society. So men are literally three pay packets away from having to sleep in their car, whereas yeah. women have a wider support network that they can lean on typically than a man would have. The man is more likely to be the one who has to leave the family home. Yeah. But yeah, that statistic of your three three paychecks away at any given moment... If you are in a normal sort of life and a normal sort of job, you don't have loads of savings, you don't have, you know, different things around you. If you're just a standard sort of person in a standard job that pays the bills, three paychecks Mm. away from being made homeless. It's awful. Yeah. So we don't have any show sponsors this week. And before we're going to move on to the second of this week's two cases, we're just going to take a little bit of time from you to mention again that... We are heading back to CrimeCon again this summer. Yes. So you can come and see us on Podcast Row again on the 10th of June. This is going to be our third time and we are so excited as we were on the first time. It's an incredible weekend for any true crime fan and it showcases experts. There's talks from families of victims. There's an opportunity to speak to authors and members of law enforcement. There are demonstrations, activities, there are book signings, all sorts. The drug sniffing dogs were a big hit in previous years. I remember that, yeah. Mm -hmm, They're very cute. But obviously our main reason for telling you about CrimeCon and about all of this is Podcast Row. Yeah, this is where you can meet us and many other podcasters and have the chance to sit in on any live recordings of the show and just ask any questions as well, really. 100%. We love getting to see all of our listeners that we we just don't know you. We don't get to put a face to your name and then we start to see you on social media and that's wonderful. But then we get to see you in person and do selfies and like have a hug even sometimes. It's just lovely and it's great. And we're also hoping to do another live show this year because it was so much fun last year. It was incredible, yeah. So CrimeCon is headed back to London on the 10th and 11th of June 2023. And for your discounted ticket, please use our code RED. We'll also be doing our usual and giving anyone who uses our code a goodie bag of seeing RED merch too. So please do think about joining us and hundreds of other true crime fans at CrimeCon this June. Some of the warning signs of an abusive relationship include a relationship moving very quickly, being constantly checked up on by your partner, being isolated from friends and family, being unable to make independent choices. These behaviours are used by perpetrators to gain control over their partner. So they might also use emotional abuse, coercion, jealousy, financial control, sexual abuse, physical abuse. There might be no signs of violence, but that doesn't mean that they're not at risk of serious harm in the future. And just because there isn't physical abuse doesn't mean this is not an abusive relationship. So if you are worried about a friend or a family member and they are struggling to ask for help, you can make a Claire's Law inquiry on their behalf 
or you can contact the police by calling 101. And obviously, if you're worried or you're interested to find out about a potential partner or your own partner, you can do this for yourself. But this is kind of if you're worried about somebody else. So Claire's Law is named after Claire Wood. She was a woman who was murdered in England by a former domestic partner who police knew to be dangerous. And do you remember, Mark, we talked about stalking and how a former relationship, someone who was in a relationship with you previously is the most likely perpetrator of that? Yeah. It's, yeah. It is fascinating that we still, when we were looking at that case, we looked at how society still thinks of stranger danger and a psycho on the loose. And actually, you're more likely to be stalked by um, someone who you were in a, an intimate relationship with previously. So Claire Wood was murdered at age 36 by George Appleton, her ex-boyfriend, in February 2009. Appleton strangled and burned Claire and then killed himself several days later. Greater Manchester Police were aware of Appleton's violent history. He had served three prison sentences before his relationship with Wood, so six months for failing to comply with a restraining order, two years for harassment, and six years for holding a woman at knife point for 12 hours. And following her death, Claire Wood's family stated she would not have entered into a relationship with Appleton had she known of this violent past of his. In a report on Wood's case, the Independent Police Complaints Commission noted that there had been individual failings by officers who demonstrated in some cases a shocking lack of understanding about the nature of domestic violence. And following Claire's death, her father campaigned to create legal means for police to warn potential targets of abuse of their partner's violent pasts. So this domestic violence disclosure scheme, which is also known as Claire's Law, came into force in 2014 and it gives any member of the public the right to ask the police if their partner may pose a risk to them. And it also allows a member of the public to make an inquiry into the partner of a close family or family member or friend. So the information that is found as a result of the request is not disclosed to anybody except for the person in the relationship. But you could go and make the disclosure request and the police will then contact that person and let them know what their findings are. In 2018... Jordan Worth became the first woman to be convicted in the UK of coercive control due to the abuse of her partner to Alex Skeel. So just days from death, Alex thankfully survived his horrific ordeal and he has gone on to talk about the abuse he suffered. He is now an ambassador for the domestic violence charity Mankind Initiative. He very bravely talked in a documentary. He's done a lot and spoken out about what he went through. Alex and Worth were both 16 when they met in college in 2012. Alex very quickly became besotted with Jordan Worth and he said, she was very caring, confident, loving. She showed a real interest in me. And despite friends describing Worth as delightful and her boyfriend as quite smitten, Alex's mum said later it wasn't long before her behaviour had taken a dark turn. Soon enough, Worth was controlling what Alex wore, telling him things like, I don't think you should wear the colour grey. I don't like your hair like that. You should have your hair like this. I don't like the shoes you're wearing. But he never really took it as a negative. It was more like, I won't wear that again because it won't impress her. I just want to keep her. I want to make sure I look good for her. I want to make sure she's happy with how I look. But there is, there is a line as well. So it's hard to know where the line is crossed because it's quite normal to say to a partner, oh, I love your hair like that. You should have it cut like that again. Or that shirt looks great on you. That's your colour rather than that colour. That's quite yeah, normal. absolutely. And that is, you're in a relationship with someone to have their honest opinion as well. So if you say to someone, what do you think of this outfit? 
not too honest, but for someone to say, do you know what, actually, I think that style isn't really going to suit you as much as this style. Why don't you try having an open conversation or something where you then become the best version of yourself because you feel confident? That's good. I suppose it's when these things are in conjunction with lots of other behaviours. So constant keeping track of somebody, where are you, who are you with? constant phone calls text messages uh all of that yeah i need your passwords for everything that yeah when you kind of put it all together then yeah you can kind of see that there's a problem here but some of these things in isolation even password sharing because i'm a real i'm a real sort of advocate that your password is your password and everybody has a right to privacy so you shouldn't have to share your passwords with your partner because there should be an element of trust so I think even that, when, when partners share passwords, that can be quite a normal thing in relationships. But equally to me, I kind of see that as a bit of a flag. If I was with somebody and they yeah. demanded to kind of know passwords, I'd be like, mm, no, that's not something I'm willing to commit to. I think, though, your wording there is quite key because if someone's demanding to do something, that's an issue. But if, as a couple, you have chosen to do something, that's probably the difference, I guess. Because... Me and my other half are very much like we'd open each other's phones and read each other's messages out to each other because if my phone goes off and I'm in the middle of the the washing up or something, I'll be like, well, what did Mark say? Like, it's not ever going to be an issue. However, that's when so me and him reading each other's phones because Mm. we know that we have that mutual understanding but going off to the bathroom and me sneaking his phone to look is different. So yeah it's it's a really interesting thing because all of this behavior is on varying degrees and at what point does it become abuse i guess is subjective to your relationship and the impact it's having on the victim exactly yeah definitely worth was erratic so her behavior was unusual and chaotic and especially to alex's family they seemed to be and they seemed to be at the time a very close-knit family but Worth was causing drama. She'd she'd kind of turn up to family events. She ruined Alex's 18th birthday by screaming at a family friend that she was jealous of, a female family friend. I'm sure I don't have to explain, but she kind of was screaming at her because she was jealous. And this is just a family friend. She would say that she wasn't going to turn up to stuff just to kind of make a scene. And I think that's really harsh because the family then are all being impacted as well. And you're putting those kind of barriers between the family and the victim. And I, I get the whole 18th birthday thing. She would have hated that, being the kind of person she was. So all of the attention is on Alex. It's his yeah, 18th birthday everyone's party. Everyone's looking at him, everyone's happy for him. Absolutely. And she would have hated that. So of course, she's going to try and steal all the limelight away in the quickest, yeah. easiest way for her that she can, which is basically getting into a massive fucking row with a family friend and screaming at her. Yeah, it's it's you could see that playing out before it before it happened. Of course, it was going to turn out that way, because it wasn't all about her otherwise. Mm-hmm. Alex did try and break up with Worth, but she then came to him pregnant and they got back together. Despite his hopes that Worth may have changed, Alex soon realised that she hadn't. And soon enough, she forced Alex to choose between her and his family, which resulted in the young couple moving into their own home in July 2016 with their son. In May 2017, Worth gave birth to their second child, a daughter, and at this point she kind of forced Alex to change his phone number. She threw away his PlayStation console, so he was really cut off from his loved ones. She then went even further and set up a Facebook account in Alex's name where she would send abusive messages to his friends, 
in a bid to isolate him further. She took Alex's wallet away, she forced him to quit the job that he loved and instead he had to accompany her to her classes at uni and just only go out where she was going. She then became physically abusive too, so on one occasion she forced him to swallow an entire packet of sleeping pills and on another occasion she severed the tendons in his right hand with a bread knife. I mean, it's it's going to get worse, so being struck with screwdrivers, hammers and knives just became part of everyday life for Alex and at one point he had his own tooth broken when Worth attacked him with a hairbrush and because of the isolation he felt and the fact that he wasn't able to go anywhere he felt he had no other option but to just pull out his own tooth because she'd snapped it in half which really reminded me of last week's case and it's horrible. Worth stabbed starved, burned and tortured Alex. She also prevented him from receiving medical treatment for injuries that she inflicted. So she would wake him up by pouring boiling hot water on his arms and then would just give him cling film to cover those burns up. She gave him black eyes on multiple occasions. Witnesses often saw Alex walking with a limp or with his arm in a sling and he was forced to sleep on the floor. And it wasn't just physical either, it was psychological as well. Worth told Alex that his granddad had died And that was a lie. He hadn't. And when Alex then broke down and cried, she laughed at him and mocked his grief. God, this with with these kind of abusers, and it was similar to last week's episode. And we've had episodes where there's been torture, um, psychological and physical torture. I don't know where these people actually dream this stuff up. Because that takes some doing to really think about how can I fuck with this oh, guy? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell him his granddad's died or I'm going to wake him up by pouring Someone boiling loves, water yeah. on him. You know, some of these things you, you can't even, we can't imagine as reasonable human beings. Maybe it's just easier for them to come up with these horrible ways of torturing someone. Yeah, I completely see where you're, what you're saying because even just the thought of it makes me feel physically sick, let alone planning something and coming up with what I would do. When concerned neighbours heard arguments and screams and they called the police, Alex told responding officers that the injuries were self-inflicted and Worth would tell them that Alex didn't want to see his family. It was his own choice to live like this and that he was hurting himself. But in reality, Alex was absolutely terrified of Worth. She threatened that she would kill him if he left her and of course, he knew full well she was totally capable of going through that threat. And he was also petrified for his children, wondering what would happen to them if he wasn't there or what Worth might do to them, either to inflict more pain on him, but also if he wasn't there to protect them, would she turn on to him? So he must have just felt so utterly helpless. Removed from his family support, Alex suffered for three long years at the hands of Worth before finally a police officer convinced him it was okay to talk. So in this kind of... um side of things there was like three or four different elements to this basically Alex's arm had been really badly burned by boiling water this time and he'd been taken to hospital for treatment so it was one of the few times that she had to allow him to go but it was because the police had been called and so they were like right we need to get you to the hospital so obviously she came in as well and as soon as he was treated She just walked him out of the hospital. The surgeon knew something was wrong and the surgeon was trying to make him stay. And also he was very badly injured and they didn't want him being discharged. But obviously he's an adult, she's an adult. And he walked out with her. But a few days later, there was another call to that couple's address. And one of the officers had kind of had all these suspicions about everything and he knew it just didn't add up. And so he kind of said, 
that as soon as I saw him in the light of day, the state of him in terms of the countless injuries all over his body, the fact that he had these horrible dirty clothes on, he was pale, he was thin, I thought he was being abused. But this officer even said that he thought Jordan Worth seemed like a very slight, well-spoken, very polite, and to all intents and purposes, a very nice lady. So she's able to really put on a face that you can understand how it hides this abuse. What an amazing bit of police work that is, though, to have that real hunch and this doesn't look right to me. I'm going to go back round in the light, cold light of day and have a look at this. And yeah, it's it kind of it spoke volumes then and that officer is doing everything he can to support this guy. Yeah. So Sergeant Finn was able to persuade Alex to tell sort of to reveal to the police what was going on and finally they had enough information to arrest Jordan Worth on suspicion of assault and grievous bodily harm. So Alex was taken to Bedford Hospital's acute clinical unit and then to Adambrook's hospital where doctors said he was just 10 days from death in his physical state. So by this point Alex weighed less than 100 pounds and his burns had become infected. Body cam footage and police tapes from the day that Jordan Worth was arrested show 21-year-old Alex looking alarmingly frail, covered with bruises. He was dressed in blood-stained clothes and he couldn't make eye contact with anyone. But shockingly to all of those around them, he gave her a hug and a kiss goodbye as she was being arrested and he was being taken to hospital. She can really see that control that she had over him. Yeah, I mean, that to me, that's not shocking because that that's exactly what a victim would do in this scenario. Yeah, true. But thank God that officer managed to kind of convince him to talk. I just, other, yeah, 10 days away from he would have died. Yeah, I was going to say that, that police officer literally saved Alex's life. Yeah. So Alex returned home to his family and he was reunited with his children, which I just felt was such a, a really important thing to know about his story, that those children were back with their dad who really loves them and not put into some sort of care system where they lost both parents, which I thought was really key. At her trial in 2018, Worth pleaded guilty to controlling or coercive behaviour in an intimate relationship, wounding with intent and causing grievous bodily harm. She was sentenced to seven and a half years of imprisonment. So she was the first woman to be convicted in the UK for the coercive control offence. And so in 2018, she was jailed for a total of seven and a half years for her crimes. But she was released in January 2022 after serving half of her sentence. She is, however, subject to strict restraining orders to ensure she can never go near Alex again, which makes sense. But I couldn't get over that half of her sentence. And I know that this is normal and it happens. But for what she did to him, that is no no time at all. The, the only thing you can hope for is that there has been an element of rehabilitation and that she has been provided support and maybe even diagnosed with uh, some kind of psychological issue that she might have been suffering from and is on medication for that. And equally, don't forget, we have got Claire's Law now. So hopefully, if any anybody gets into a relationship with her in the future and starts to see those signs, yeah. one, her name's out there anyway, unless she's yeah. changed it, which a lot of people do when they get released. Um, but two, they, they can use Claire's Law and... Um, her new partner can then be notified of her horrific past. Yeah. 
Alex now coaches a football team sponsored by a domestic abuse charity and he talks to professionals to help them spot the signs of abuse. And as I mentioned, he's an ambassador for the charity and he also really bravely talked about his ordeal in a TV documentary. I think it was um, a BBC Three or something along those lines. And he said, the day that she went to prison, I felt so free. It was a massive relief. I just remember saying, I can actually look over my shoulder now for the first time in five years without worrying. Now that I'm free from the relationship, I'm beginning to understand abuse better and I hope I can help others understand it too. The memories will never leave me, but I'm learning how to cope. I have so much support from my friends and family and I'm building a future for me and my kids. It's so nice, isn't it? Particularly after last week and obviously the first case that you talked about in today's episode. It's so nice to have a happy ending to a case that we've covered. So, yeah, it's a great but, way for us to yeah, end this episode. I mean, episode. it's still absolutely horrific. But, yeah, just something where he's kind of able to do something and come out the other side. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put details of the charities that you've mentioned mm-hmm. in the show notes. So in the helpline, If you yeah. need to, yeah, if you do need to contact them, uh, they'll be there. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.